And I titled the study this morning, Who is the Lord? And you might look at that title and go, why would you come to a, a, an assembly, a congregation like this that, that has faith in God, that believes in God, and, and talk about who the Lord is? I think it's important for us to be reminded of some of the things that we're going to study this morning. And as, as we talked about, we may mention of uh, the foreign works that we're involved in, Nigeria, as well as many others, uh, where there's a lot of individuals that don't know the Lord. And we want to, to share that, that information with them. We want to, to give them the hope uh, that's contained in the gospel. Um, starting off this morning, I think back to passages like Exodus chapter 5. Um, in Exodus chapter 5, uh, the Bible says, Afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And so Pharaoh asked this question. He said, Who is the Lord? Why should I obey his voice? I don't know the Lord, and I'm not going to let Israel go. You know why? Why was that the case? Why was that the situation? And what we find is that when it comes to knowledge of the Lord, sometimes there's ignorance, and it's a willful ignorance. It's people have chosen not to know the Lord, not to obey His voice. And therefore, though there may be some that, that it was just outright rebellion that rejected and refused to come to know the Lord, there are others who were affected by that kind of choice. And, and it's simply through a unfortunate set of circumstances that they become ignorant of the Lord. They might grow up in a, a nation, a, a country, a household where there's no knowledge of the Lord. There's no teaching of the Lord and His Word. And so they may somehow uh, come to a, an adult point in life and have never come to know the Lord. And so we need to be able to share the Lord with those types of individuals. They might be willing to come to know the Lord and to obey His voice. And yet they haven't had the opportunity in Deuteronomy 6, verse number 10, he says, It shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which, I swear, which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities, which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things, which thou fillest not, and wells digged, which thou digst not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not. When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord. So there's another reason that we talk about who the Lord is this morning because I think it's more likely, it's more probable that most of us fall into this category that the Lord warned the children of Israel about uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you fields with vineyards and orchards and things of that nature that you didn't plant that you didn't bring up from the seed and that you didn't put all your sweat and labor into and those are going to be yours and you're going to have houses and cities that are fortified and ways to draw water that you didn't put all the labor and the sweat into. You just have access to that. And you're going to have all those blessings and all of those nice things and you're going to forget that it was I that provided those things for you. And I think that's the more probable danger uh, for you and I this morning. And so whatever the case might be, whether it be to increase our knowledge and our ability to share the Lord with those who may be ignorant of Him, or the reminder that we need not to forget who the Lord is, 
that makes the study of the morning important to us. <clears throat> in Proverbs chapter 30, in verse number 8, the wise man said, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. And so the wise man understood that this was a very real temptation, a very real uh, danger that children of God would face, that they would become overly blessed, if you will, that things would become too easy for them in this life, and they would become self-dependent, self-reliant, and ignorant of the Lord and who He was and how just how dependent that we are upon the Lord. When we talk about who the Lord is, and we shift our, our thinking back to this idea of, of people that are possibly ignorant of the Lord. We think about the existence of God in Genesis 1, verse number 1, the very first passage of Scripture in the Bible. The Bible tells us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we're introduced to God in the very first verse of the Bible. And His existence is this basic truth upon which all reality depends. Without God, there's nothing. We don't exist. We're not here. And from the viewpoint of the biblical writers that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that was a, a fact, a reality that needed no proof, if you will. That God's existence didn't need a whole bunch of, of support with that. We have study in a whole uh, field that we call apologetics where we support uh, these teachings of the Bible and the truths that we find in God's Word and we'll, we'll take all of the evidence that helps to uh, create that type of faith in individuals and certainly it exists and it's there. But from the viewpoint of these uh, biblical writers, His existence is fact and, and it was assumed and there wasn't additional proof needed. Consider Romans chapter 1, verse number 19. He says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And as he continues on in that chapter, a downward spiral of this conscious choice to reject the knowledge of God, a desire not to, to retain God in their knowledge and to have Him in their thoughts and to acknowledge Him as the giver of blessings, led to this, this decay and this decline. But he makes mention of the fact that simply the creation provided this overwhelming amount of evidence for the existence of God, so much so that the individuals that rejected Him, that denied Him, they stood without excuse before Him. And that's not the sum total of all the evidence that God has given. We have His Word. We have a sure word of prophecy. We have... Uh, abundant amount of evidence and uh, miracles and works and other things that have been made known where God has revealed Himself. He's had those things documented. He's had those words written down and preserved with His promise that they wouldn't pass away and so on and so forth. But the existence of God is 
there as this fundamental truth upon which reality uh, exists. Acts chapter 14 and verse number 15, we see an environment very much similar to the environment that we are becoming more and more familiar with today. He said, the Bible says in saying, Sirs, why do you these things? So the context here is that, is that uh, after preaching, uh, Paul is, is they're attempting to worship him because of the, I guess, the power of his message and just the culture that they lived in that they were accustomed to. to essentially, they were willing and ready to worship just about anything. And that was, that was part of the problem. And they're fixing to worship him. He says, we also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities, this willingness to, to worship anything that walks or moves or that you can see, unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And so another witness is mentioned here in this passage, and that's just the blessings of God that he's poured out on all of humanity. And he says God hasn't left himself without a witness. In blessing humanity in all the ways that he does, he's given more evidence and proof, if you will, of his existence. And so when we talk about God and the existence of God and God's nature, we talk about the timeless nature of God. Because I think when it, we talk about the idea of someone who once knew God coming to forget the Lord, that that's not something that happens overnight. It's not an all-at-once transition. I think that it begins in our own lives oftentimes with forgetting some of the realities about the Lord and who He is. Some of the uh, things that there are clearly taught in the Scripture and yet, we lose confidence in those clear teachings and therefore do not trust the Lord, the God of heaven, to the extent that we should. And when we think about God's eternal nature, uh, the Bible has a lot to say that in, about that. In Psalms chapter 90, verse number 2, he says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. And that term brought forth means to, to bear young, to uh, beget. beget. Um, and here's the, the concept that's in both these phrases. Before the mountains were begotten or brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth. And so both of those things that a lot of the naturalists look to as eternal matter and the earth and these things, pointing back before that to God as the creator, as the father of those things, from everlasting and to everlasting. We use the, the word infinity, uh, indefinite measures of time, and that's the simple teaching from God's word about God. In Isaiah chapter 57 and verse number 15, it says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that's of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And so he's from everlasting to everlasting, and he inhabits time without boundaries, eternity 
a, a realm, if you will, where time is irrelevant. Because time is a measure of the rate of change. Time is something that is so significant to you and I that we have a clock on or most of it most of us use our phone nowadays or we have a watch or we've got it hanging on the walls somewhere because everything we do revolves around that it's so significant and it dominates our life so much and sometimes when we begin in the earliest stages to forget who the lord is we start to fashion him after ourselves and think that he's constrained by the same things that we are like time and we forget that that's, in fact, not the case. In Psalms 102, in verse number 27, he says, But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. <coughs> and so, excuse me, when we talk about the eternity of God and His eternal nature, one of the things that we need to attach to that, and it's very it's significant and important that we understand when we talk about the eternal nature of God, is the unchangeable nature of God. Because the Lord who is from everlasting and to everlasting and remains the same throughout that. That's very significant because that has a lot to do with how much and in the ways that we can trust Him and rely upon Him, that He changes not. In fact, the prophet in Malachi chapter 3, verse number 6, he said, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And so this everlasting, eternal God does not change. He remains the same. In Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse number 27, he says, The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out the enemy before thee, and shall say, Destroy them. And so again, we see an eternal God with everlasting arms that desires to shelter his children. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 31 and they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passes away. And so when we talk about the eternal nature of God, and we talk about who the Lord is, and making application of that in our life, that He's timeless. And throughout the span of eternity, He remains the same. And so the clock dominates so much of what we do when we remember who the Lord is, and we stir up each other's mind by way of romance and encourage each other, we need to remember that God doesn't depend upon the clock the way that we do. The things that matter so much to us matter not to Him. And He's the master of time, and He's shown that throughout the history of mankind. The things that require us great amounts of time require Him no time at all. He created when we're introduced to God, we're introduced to Him as a Creator. We look at the world around us and those that are ignorant of the Lord, whether that be willful ignorance or otherwise, they look at the world and they say, this has to have taken vast amounts of time. And that's the exact opposite of what the Scripture teaches. That He commanded and they were created. And that's the God that we serve. That's the God that we worship. And praise, and that's the God that doesn't change. That's the God that's made us many great and precious promises. And yet we get all wound up and wrapped up and we begin to worry and we begin to fret. Why would we do that? When he says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Why would we do that? Have we forgotten who the Lord is? 
Another thing that the Scripture teaches us about God is that He's omnipresent. That He's everywhere. And that often it escapes our, our capacity sometimes to think about. We, we consider our own limitations. And oftentimes we would place those limitations on the powerful Lord God of heaven. And that would be a great mistake. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 27, <clears throat> King Solomon writing after he had uh, dedicated the temple, I believe, it says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. And so Solomon in his wisdom, after he had prepared this temple uh, for the Lord, and he's dedicating it, and he's, he's praying to the God of heaven, he says, The heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain you. How much less this, this house that I've built you. That word omni, it, it means all. All, every, the whole, every kind. And so, he has that presence. Deuteronomy 4, verse number 39. Know therefore this day and consider it in thy heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else. He's reigning high and lifted up in heaven. But contrary to our human logic, that doesn't mean that he's absent from things that are going on here below. He's God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath simultaneously. And he has been and he will be. In Psalms 139, verse number 8, If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. And the psalmist continues to this end and this same concept that God is there. Uh, God's presence doesn't exclude our existence, but rather makes it possible. And so... You know, the, the simplest, the child might ask, if, if God is, is everywhere, if He's present everywhere, where, is that, where does that leave room? And that's the simple reality, the simple concept teaching the Bible that His presence doesn't exclude our existence, but makes it possible. That's how we can exist, because of the presence of God. In Jeremiah 23, verse number 24, Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth saith the Lord. Acts chapter 17 and verse number 28, the scripture says, For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. That it's in God that we live and move and have our being. That He's everywhere. And sometimes our concerns, our worries, our anxieties, whatever words word that you want to choose to describe that and the, the struggles and the difficulties of this life and the concerns, the things that may cause us to lose sight of who the Lord God of heaven is as they mount, it's because we can't be everywhere at once. It's because I need to be over here doing this and then I get this call that I'm needed over here to do that and then I get this call that Something over here is going on and I feel like I need to be over there doing that and I say, I can't, I can't be everywhere. Well, fortunately for you and for me, 
we serve and we have a God that can be and is. And he says, cast your cares upon him because he cares about you. And so we have a solution. We have an answer from the God of heaven. We have a reason not to be overcome and overwhelmed in this life. And we have a reason that that can set us apart and make us shine in this world that frequently is overcome and overwhelmed and says, I don't know what to do. That we have a God who is present. We have a God that knows. Omniscient. Again, that, that prefix omni that means all science is knowledge. All knowledge. We have a God. We serve a God. We're of a God. The children of a God that knows all. Isaiah 46 verse number 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end of the thing from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. A God that declares the end of the thing from the beginning. And through the prophet Isaiah, the God of heaven challenges humanity. He says, You find another being like that. You find anyone, anything else that can tell you the end of the story before it starts and make it happen in the way that I've declared it. And God shows His power and He shows His knowledge in doing that. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 13, neither is there any creature that's not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows. He doesn't just know how the story is going to end. He knows what's going on in your heart, in your mind. He knows that in spite of what you and I tell ourselves, he knows the reason that we made the choices that we made. The trust or the lack of trust that led us to do the things that we did. The love or the lack of love that caused us to act in the way that we did. He knows those things. It's not hidden from Him. The future is not hidden from Him. The past is not hidden from Him. The present is not hidden from the God of heaven. He knows. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse number 9, David says, And now Solomon, my son, Know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts, and understandeth all the imagination of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he'll be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he'll cast thee off forever. When I think about it, when I examine my own life, and I look back and I... Maybe I, I, I get to a point and I say, how did I get in this kind of mess? What did I do? What are the mistakes that I made that brought me to the point that I'm at right now? I, honestly, a lot of times I look back and I go, I don't know what I was thinking. Someone says, what were you thinking? And my answer is, I don't know. I've heard my, my wife ask some of my children that. What were you thinking? And they say, I don't know. She says, that's not good enough. <laughs> you have to know. But then I think about it and say, sometimes I act foolishly. I don't really, I don't even understand. I didn't even wrap my mind around the motive or the reason that I did the things that I did. God knows. 
all the imaginations of the thoughts. He understands why you did the things that you did. And sometimes when you don't even have that answer, you can rest assured that He has that answer. And if you want to get to the bottom of things and you want to focus on solutions and not problems and make progress, then you know where to go. You know who has the source of knowledge, who understands all the imaginations of the thoughts, that understands how you work, how you're made, and how to correct your path wherever you're at. You have that in the God of heaven. And the all-knowing God of heaven that knows how the story is going to end and has declared it and will bring it to pass. In Psalms 139, verse number 3, Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all of my ways. And that ought to wake up anyone who claims to serve the living God, the Lord, God of heaven. He's acquainted with all your ways. He knows. He understands. There's nothing hidden from him. The psalmist in Psalm 69 and verse number 5, O oh God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. An open book. And God knows. And sometimes we convince ourselves that we're hiding things that nobody knows. But rest assured, the Lord God of heaven knows. In Psalm 147, verse number 5, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. It has no bounds. And yet we would go to some man and trust him over the Lord God of heaven. We'd read some book and say, Well, it's sold a million copies. It has to be right. There's no boundary to the understanding of God. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 28, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There's no searching of his understanding. Knowledge without bounds. Paul told the Romans, Oh, the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways are past finding out. I don't, can't tell you how many questions I've been asked. It seems like in the very recent past. And the, all I could come up with was, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, and that's frustrating. That's frustrating. And when you get to a point where you have all these questions and you don't know, then you can let worry take hold and you can let stress and anxiety and doubt and fear and all of these things govern your choices. The scripture says He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that's called us to glory and virtue. He has all the knowledge. He has all the understanding. And sometimes we read His Word and we say, I don't understand how if I do that, that that's going to work out. Well, He understands. And if we know the Lord and we believe the truths that are revealed to us about Him and His Word, then we'll have the proper amount of confidence, the proper amount of trust. We'll have the faith that we need to be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Not only does He have all the knowledge he has all the power. 
The word omnipotent, all-powerful. Revelation chapter 19, verse number 6, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, say, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. He has all the power. We should take comfort in that. Job 42, verse number 1, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Job understood this truth about the God of heaven, that he had the power that he could do everything. Proverbs 26, verse number 10, The great God that formed all things both rewardeth the fool and rewardeth transgressors. If he could speak the earth that we know that we see around us into existence with the power of his voice, and yet we won't turn over the things that worry us, the things that concern us to him. Do we not know the Lord? Do we not understand the simple things that his word teaches us and reveals to us about him? Daniel chapter 4 verse number 35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? The Lord God of heaven. Who's going to question him? Who's going to say, Wait a minute. I need to see a permit. Do you have a permit to do that? Who's going to stay his hand? Who's going to question what he does? There's no one. Matthew 19, verse number 26, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. An all-powerful God that we serve. In Hebrews 6, verse number 18, That by two immutable or unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. <clears throat> Some people would look at this and say, well, this is a, a contradiction to what you've just told us. You said, you know, the Bible says nothing's impossible with God, and here's this verse that says it's impossible for God. In Hebrews, he says that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge. And so we flee for refuge to this rock to this Lord God of heaven, and we can have strong consolation for him. What's impossible for him? He said it's impossible for him to lie. Why? It's because of the kind of God that he is. It's a self-imposed limitation. It's a simple explanation. There's no great contradiction. There's no reason to stumble over this. God can't lie because of who he is, because he's faithful, because he's holy, because he's set apart. And that's why we, as we begin to draw to a close this morning, we talk about this all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God, the kind of God that He is, His character. In Psalms 45, and verse number 17, the Lord is righteous in all His ways and holy in all His works. That's why He can't lie, because of who He is. It's because He's not going to change. He's unchangeable. And because who of who he has determined that he is, he cannot lie. Psalms 116 and verse number 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous, yea, our God is merciful. And therein lies the source of our great comfort and consolation when we think about an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God, that he's gracious and merciful. The prophet Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse number 17 
It says, And refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst amongst them, but hardened their necks. And in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsooks them not. And that's the kind of God that the Lord God of heaven is. And that's the kind of God that we need to make known to the world that doesn't know him, to those that may have rejected him. That's the kind of God that we need to remember day in and day out that we serve. And to seek that abundant mercy and pardon and great kindness that he's shown us. Righteous means just and lawful. Holy means set apart. Gracious means compassionate, soft-hearted, sympathetic. And merciful means to show compassion. You know, it's one thing to, to be soft-hearted, to be sympathetic. To feel sorry for someone when they're suffering, when they're having a hard time. That's one thing. And it's another thing, merciful, to act upon that feeling. And we have a God that's both. He's gracious, compassionate, and He's merciful. And He acts upon that compassion that He has for you and I and for His creation. In 1 John 4, verse number 16, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. And so, love is the word that's used to describe God and to sum up his character. In John chapter 3, verse number 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves to the extent that he's willing to sacrifice. And he has sacrificed. And he's allowed Christ to sacrifice. And that's the kind of God that the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God of heaven is. <clears throat> Isaiah 25 and 1, O Lord, thou art my God, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things, thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And so we need to be a people that sing his praises to the world around us. And we need to make him known, his faithfulness and his truth to the world around us. And we need to let that encourage us and sustain us through whatever difficulties or challenges may come in this life. In 2 Peter 3, verse number 9, The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The all-knowing, all-powerful God of heaven doesn't desire anyone to perish. He wants them to be saved. He wants them to come to repentance so that they can be saved. And that should provide comfort. He's a Savior. In 1 Timothy 2, verse number 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will or desires have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so we see that requirement of knowing the Lord, coming to a knowledge of the truth, understanding who He is and what His plan is for an individual to be saved. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so when we think about the kind of God that the Lord is, the character that He has, and then we look to His purpose. And his purpose is to save. That's his desire, and therefore that ought to be our purpose as well if we know the Lord, if we're his children. In Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, 
For it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so this morning, this congregation stands ready to assist anyone that desires to obey the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation is on the wall up there in Galatians chapter 3. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you know the Lord, there's no excuse. The evidence is overwhelming. And you've heard the gospel taught. Then the answer is to obey His voice. To be baptized into Christ. And to put on Christ. And to have Christ as your Savior. Understand that there's a judgment coming. When we talk about God, it's prudent for us to consider this aspect. In Genesis 18, verse number 25, to the very beginning of the Scriptures, the revelation that we have from God, He says, That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And so as Abraham pleads with God, he understood a simple concept that all need to understand, that we need to remember whatever aspects, whatever parts, whatever truths about God that we may tend to forget from time to time. We need to be constantly aware of this truth, that He's going to be the judge of all the earth. Psalms 19, verse number 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And His judgment is just, it's true, it's righteous, and it will be so because He doesn't change. In Romans chapter 2, verse number 6, Who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but unrighteousness, indignation and wrath. And so the God of heaven will sit as the judge. 2 Timothy 4, verse number 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. And so that reward awaits the faithful. And the choice has to be made. And the choice is simple. Joshua put it this way, If it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you'll serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who could understand the Lord? Who could know about the Lord? Who could accept the simple truths that are given uh, with overwhelming amount of evidence, evidence in abundance, who the Lord is, and choose anything but to serve Him? Joshua made the only clear choice. And the reality is, is up to this point in life, you've made your choice too. You've made a choice. Hebrews 11 speaks of a group of individuals. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and truly if they'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunities to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly. Wherefore God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. These died in faith. And up to this point in life, what choice have you made? You've seen the promises that He's made? Are you convinced 
that he knows the end from the beginning, that he has all the knowledge, that he has all the understanding, that he's present, that he's powerful, that he's able to deliver? Have you embraced him? Do you live by him? Is your life that confession that he talked about in this passage? That you're a stranger and a pilgrim, that you're looking for a city that has foundations as builder and maker is God. Knowing who God is, there's only one conclusion. 1 Peter 5, verse number 6, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And to have humility, to humble yourself before God, that's the only sane, that's the only logical conclusion that exists when you study about who the Lord God of heaven is. That he's all present, that he's all powerful, that he's all knowing. And you don't have to think very long about where you stand in any of those categories to realize he's high and lifted up and that you ought to recognize your true standing to humble yourself before him, to submit yourself and to be obedient. Don't be arrogant. Don't be forgetful to follow the simple instructions that he's given us, to trust him to the extent that he ought to be trusted, to serve him to the extent that he ought to be served, to honor him to the extent that he ought to be honored in your daily choices and the time that you spend or don't spend in prayer and the time that you spend or don't spend in telling others about him and the time that you spend or don't spend in studying his word. Where do you stand this morning? Knowing who God is, it ought to clarify what you need to do from here. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.